welcome to the Speed Goes In podcast and I'm with David Epstein who I had the fortune of meeting at AMSSM, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine Conference and he did a highlight presidential lecture and I think you'll see why after we've had a chance to chat. He has an interesting background in sport as a runner himself. He's coming from the journalism sports science side rather than being clinical and uh, I'm going to let him tell you about that. So David, thanks a ton for doing the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now you've got this wonderful book called The Sports Gene and I've been telling people about it on Twitter and uh, many of my colleagues have read it. What was the motivation for writing a book like The Sports Gene? So it it actually came out of uh, my own life as an athlete, Um, starting with, I grew up in an area that had had an influx of Jamaican immigrants outside Chicago and so track and field was very popular at my high school and we won 24 straight conference championships in a row, very much on the backs of these Jamaican sprinters. And so when I was like 16 years old and flipped open a National Geographic atlas and saw that there are two and a half million people in Jamaica, I sort of started to wonder what the heck was going on over there to produce all these runners. So then in college, I, I move up running a little longer distances. Now I'm meeting some Kenyan guys and learning that they're all from the same tiny town in the Western Rift Valley. And so again, I'm saying, what the heck's going on there? I'd like to see it someday. At the same time, I was in a training group of five guys we're all, we're doing everything together. We literally lived together, ate together, sleep together, well, you know, same, same dorm, and, uh, and training together stride for stride day after day, and we were getting more different, not more the same, and something about that didn't make sense to me. So I just sort of started accumulating these questions in my head, um, and, and ultimately what made me realize I really did want to write about these things was continuing curiosity in those, and also, um, the sudden death of one of those Jamaican training partners of mine that, that was because of a genetic mutation. And so I realized I had a lot of genetic sports genetics questions that had been stewing in my mind when I had the opportunity to travel around the world and investigate them, I jumped at it. Yeah, so you're working for Sports Illustrated at the time and you do tell fantastic stories um, in the book about your experience. I mean, why don't we begin with um, a story that you call Super Baby. Yeah, so Super Baby was, this actually, I came across this story when I wanted to investigate what the future of doping might look like, right? And so, and of course, gene doping is, is sort of what people uh, were talking about and what WADA fears. And I didn't know if this was a reality, because in most cases, we don't know what a lot of the genes for performance are. But in some cases, uh, we do. In this case, there was a, a baby born in Germany, identified by a doctor at a hospital who said, wow, you know, basically like looked at his butt and said, you know, I could bounce a quarter off his butt there, and he had already sort of sculpted calves, and, and so he calls a researcher in the United States who he knows works on muscular development and says, you know, you got to check out this baby, sends him a sample, finds a mutation uh, in the myostatin gene in the baby, which codes for a protein that basically tells muscles to stop growing. So this, this boy has, has actually two copies of the mutant gene, no myostatin whatsoever, so no muscle stop sign. So he has this explosive muscle growth. Right? By age three, he could hold out seven-pound dumbbells out at arm's length. I mean, can you imagine toddler-proofing a household like that? And it turns out to be the same mutation that makes certain cattle incredibly muscular, that, that farmers have just bred for by looking for the trait, uh, that makes racing dogs sprinter fast. Super Baby's mother had a, a single copy of the mutation. She's a prof- she was a professional sprinter, which is exactly what single mutation what you see in dogs. And so it's this sort of phenomenal instance of uh, this finding of almost like a, a, a super gene in this case. And of course, the purpose of the research is to try to figure out how you can target therapy to prevent muscle wasting and like muscular dystrophy. But of course, it might also have 
much broader applications for muscle wasting and growth in general. And if we just move up the age span, tell us about Pam Reed. So Pam Reed is probably my my favorite interview in the book. She is, so I knew full well that uh, physical activity alters the chemical environment in the brain, but until I reported the book, I didn't realize that scientists who study it know full well the opposite is true as well. The biology influences physical activity. And Pam is a, is a legendary ultramarathoner, one of the best women of all time, who simply uh, has no tolerance for being physically inactive whatsoever. And it led to my favorite interview in the book because she was here in New York uh, competing in the national championships of Ironman triathlon. She qualified for the world championships at age 55. She, the next day, her flight out of LaGuardia Airport is delayed. And I get a hold of her on the phone then, and she gets so antsy sitting still that she stashed her bags in a corner and was running laps around the parking structure while I was interviewing her. And it's, it was just, you know, she's obviously an extreme outlier for her compulsive drive to be physically active, but it was just fascinating to talk to her, and, I, and, and she's curious about herself, so she keeps up with some of the rodent literature about voluntary physical activity. She knows full well that scientists who just separate mice who voluntarily run a lot and those who run a little, you know, after about six generations, if they breed the high runners with high and low runners with low, you've got mice that are just absolutely attacking the wheel for seven, eight miles a day, and other mice that are sort of like putzing around on it and, and slovenly laying on the wheel. It's pretty incredible. And they don't find a specific gene for that? There are, there are genes, there are loci that have been identified, and some of them have repeated and some of them haven't. Um, one that, that con continually repeats and seems to be valid in humans as well is the dopamine receptor D4 gene, which we know um, has over and over again been shown to predispose people to ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which is, what, nothing more than a drive to to move around a lot, right, that kids have. And what do we do is we, we take a medication that alters the dopamine environment in their brain, and then they don't feel like they have to move around a lot, which could be good or could be bad, depending on what outcome you're going for. Um, one fascinating thing study I came across in the book was that gene in Ariel tribesmen in Kenya, some of them are still nomadic and some are recently settled, and the gene starts selecting out once they've settled, as if they no longer have this, this drive to move. So that might have fascinating implications for the body changes we're seeing today and levels of inactivity. So these couple of mutations and examples might suggest that uh, genetics, a single gene mutation can have any influence, but your overall take from your work on um, genes and uh, influence of genes on sporting behaviours suggests that they are the exceptions. That's right, and I think it's, it's falling very much in line with what medical genetics has shown. You know, it's the, the Huntington's disease genes were uh, this was easier to find early on. Mendelian, you know, high or 100% penetrance genes. You have the variant, you, you get the disease. And turned out we found those ones earlier because they're easier to find. And I think the same is holding true for sports. There are a small number of genes that on their own seem to have a massive influence, but as the vast, vast minority. And in, in, even in traits that are simple to measure, like height, it's starting to look like there are thousands of gene variants that are involved. And, and they may not be the same gene variants in, in, in different families. So there's a lot of evidence now they're private mutations, different mutations that can cause the same phenotype, which means it's even more complex to study. And it struck home when you wrote about the sprinters in the final and you're saying that the sprinters in the two lanes might have a different set of fast sprint genes, is that? Absolutely, and, and, and I've made this argument to uh, Giannis Pizzolatis and I, who does some of this research, we um, would have this debate sometimes, and he'd say, well, I'm looking for the sprint genes. And I would say, are those the sprint genes for Michael Frater in lane one, who's five foot six and takes 46 steps 
you know, and gets three feet off the ground when he runs, or for Usain Bolt in lane two, who's six foot five, takes way fewer steps, has a completely different body structure, uh, and I think we don't even know the phenotype well enough uh, to, to be looking for those genes in many cases. You know, Sir Roger Bannister, the first man to break the four-minute mile and the world-famous neurologist, had some quote, like, in the 50s where he said the integration of brain, heart, lungs, and muscle that the body accomplishes still is generations in advance of the physiologist. And I think in many cases, especially in high-performance sports, that's still very often true. So the clinicians listening to this podcast, they'll be working with teams and the coaches will be encouraging them to help with training programs. And we've got strength and conditioning people who are listening. So what does your work tell us about trainability and training schedules? Yeah, I think, I think, so to me, one of the major kind of revolutions that came out of medical genetics was the finding that because you have a different gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism than I do, you might need three Tylenol to get an effect while I might need one, or maybe no amount works for you. We're seeing the same thing in exercise genetics, that no two people get the same response or physiological remodeling to any particular dose of exercise, right? And importantly, in some cases, baseline ability has a zero correlation with ability to train, right? So if you took people at baseline and said, these 10 of my 50 people are the best right now at baseline, let's get rid of the rest and train these, you would miss, in some studies, 100% of the people who go on to become the best. So instead of testing for baseline capacity, finding measures of trainability is, I think, really where we should focus a lot of attention. And tell us examples of that from the book where you looked at someone who had better training. Yeah, well, one of, one of the examples that I love just loving uh, track and field was Jim Ryan, who ESPN a couple years ago voted the greatest U.S. high school athlete of all time ahead of Tiger Woods and LeBron James. And Jim Ryan uh, tried a variety of different sports, um, uh, wasn't very good, but, but they would sort of let him participate in track if he wanted to. And he went and he was okay. He ran like a 540 mile in his first attempt and ends that season running, I think, 406 or 408. Just incredible improvement in training, you know? And, and I was a mini version of that, right, where I was not so good and, and got good quite quickly. And, and what happened with me was I was paired. I was a walk-on to college, which means I wasn't recruited running the 800 meters. I was paired with a guy who, when we were both juniors in high school, was running uh, 20 seconds faster than me in the 800. He was already a national level athlete for Canada. And, you know, we did everything together. We trained together, but I kept gaining and gaining and gaining on him. And eventually at about a minute 53 seconds, I passed him and kept getting faster. And uh, he never beat me again. You know, and, and the narrative that our our coaches sort of employed was that, well, I was no, not talented but tough, and he was talented but a head case. But we were doing the same things. If anything, he was doing more. And turns out I have most of those high responder genes in a low baseline. So I, I had the fortune of getting tested <laughs> during the process of the book. So note to self, uh, don't race against David in 800 metres. If he's um, in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> any shape. So that's the important point, though, that uh, this baseline level can be completely not correlated to trainability. Right. And uh, the people who train may end up beating the people who are better at baseline. That's not widely known, I don't think. No, absolutely. And... and uh, it's extreme. In, in some cases, the trainability is much more important than the differences in baseline. Um, and, and it shows up actually in some, but not all, skill acquisition studies for motor skills as well. In some studies of motor skills, uh, baseline ability does have some correlation with ability to improve, um, but in others, it doesn't. And so I think it's really important. It's, there's no, no easy answer. So I think it's important for people to figure out which are those skills where it matters and the ones that 
where, where baseline is uncorrelated from trainability to find measures of trainability. And have a try for things in practical sense. People could try to get better and see if they get better. Absolutely. And, and I think people should do, um, you know, we're here at the, the Leaders in Performance Conference and people are talking a lot about self-assessment uh, and, and ways to assess. And I think we, we all need to take that to everything, right? Because with most people, recreational athletes, or even sometimes higher level athletes, whether it comes to their diet or their training, they, they're, they're taking cookie cutter approaches. They're doing what they saw work for somebody else. And that's a fine way to start. But I think we have to have that approach of self-assessment and self-exploration uh, where you are doing an experiment of one on yourself. And if you're not taking that trial and error approach, I think you're really missing out on the exploration that is training and you're a lot less likely to get to your, to find the, the, the optimal environment for your completely inimitable genome. So I think it's optimistic, you know, and you have, the book has an optimistic air. Um, Thank and you. I want to get to a couple controversial issues in sports medicine because you've touched on the sudden cardiac death issue and the chronic traumatic encephalopathy issue. But before we do that, maybe to illustrate this trainability, you give a couple of examples in high jump. Yeah. Can you share those with us? Yeah, so this, there's a story I tell in the book called The Tale of Two High Jumpers. One of those high jumpers is Stefan Holm, a Swedish high jumper who's been obsessed with high jumps since about age six when he saw it on television. You know, he was good as a kid, but not, not great. You know, you wouldn't have put him in the Olympic development pipeline at that point. But he got totally obsessed. You know, I would find him ditching class to go practice high jump. And um, he, as he told me, high jump was my girlfriend. Uh, and he improved. You know, this is something that seems really like you either have it or you don't, jumping. He improved one centimeter per year for 20 straight years, transforming himself into the ultimate have in this by hardening his Achilles tendon, turns out. that's what he, he didn't know that's what he was doing at the time, but that's what he was doing. The Achilles tendon being like a spring in the back of your leg that you use for jumping. And in 2007 at the World Championships, oh, excuse me, actually in 2004, he won the Olympic gold medal. So he goes from being good but not great as a kid, you wouldn't have picked that for him in the future, to winning the Olympic gold medal and equaling the record for the highest clearance over your own head. Because um, he's only about 5'10 or 5'11, he went up to almost 8 feet. Um, and in 2007, he goes to the World Championships, faces a guy who was on eight months of training, having found out at a lunchtime bet that he was a pretty good high jumper, which was talking trash at lunchtime, a guy named Donald Thomas at a small college in Missouri about how good an athlete he was, and a guy in the track team said, you wouldn't even be able to clear 6'6". Six, six. So they go to the field house, Donald gets his shoes, ends up clearing seven feet. They enter him in a track meet. He's, he's jumping, he's putting his arms behind him because he's not comfortable falling through the air and all this sort of thing. And he, he jumps 7'5", sets the field house record, takes a scholarship to Auburn University, after eight months of training, he's in the world championships facing Stefan Holm and actually wins with the worst form you have ever seen. He flails his arms and he flails his legs in the air. So Stefan Holm's father, who was his coach, called this his flutter kick style and said, you know, that it was just a, an abomination on the sport. Um, but And Donald Thomas himself told me that he finds high jump kind of boring, which is really unusual for a world champion to say that. It turns out, you know, where Stephen Holm had this very tight spring in the back of his leg that he'd, he'd made through training, Donald Thomas was born with an incredibly long Achilles tendon, should have been on a guy much taller. And of course, like any spring, you can store a lot of energy by making it either very long uh, or very tight. And so here, I just thought it was a good example of two guys who came to essentially the same place in a very straightforward sport through completely opposite paths. And, and I use it as an example to try to sort of rebel against the variability uh, that we've reduced to this so-called 10,000-hour rule. Because here you have a guy, Stefan Holm, who by his own estimate put in 20,000 hours. Donald Thomas, almost zero. So they average 10,000 hours, but it doesn't tell you anything about the reality of performance. 
And how did Donald Thomas do after he got yeah. the proper training and coaching? That's a good question. So um, someone suggested to Johnny Holm that he trained Donald, actually. And Johnny Holm said, I doubt it's possible, which sounds Johnny's silly. Johnny's dad? Or? Johnny's Stephen Holm's dad, yeah, and, and coach. But it turns out he's right so far. So Donald Thomas seems to contradict the 10,000 hours rule from every direction. He started at the top, and now he's been a pro for seven years, and he hasn't gotten any better. Uh, so he's kind of unusual. <laughs> And you brought up the 10,000 hours because um, people have been sort of putting you on talk shows with Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. Um, how, does, how does that go? Uh, I, think it goes, I think it goes well. One, because I'm interested in talking about it and I think it deserves public discussion. Um, two, because we're both sort of uh, civil. Um, we've been doing some runs together lately. Um, but also I think, I think he didn't intend necessarily for get, to get taken the way he did. And, and, you know, I don't let him off the hook for that because he called it a magic number to expertise and he called it a rule. Um, and so he sort of makes some side notes in his chapter where he says, well, of course, talent matters, but sort of downplays it. But after his book had really got taken away to this idea that 10,000 hours of practice is both necessary and sufficient for anyone to achieve expertise in anything. And I think um, I'm pretty well equipped to show that that's not at all what the literature, including the study that the so-called 10,000 hours rule comes from says. I mean, so that study, so I, I was in Australia at the Australian Institute of Sport once and a soccer coach showed me his training plan to take kids from age eight to 18 in exactly 10,000 hours of practice. And so I asked him, had he read the primary source? He hadn't read the primary source. It's, it's a violin study of 30 kids, 30 young people who were so highly pre-screened they were already in a world famous music academy, right? So I liken this to setting up you know, suffers from what statisticians call a severe restriction of range problem. This would be like setting up a study of basketball skill, restricting your subjects to NBA centers, noticing they'd all practiced a lot and saying, well, only practice got them to the NBA, not practice plus being seven feet tall, right? You can get really bizarre results when you restrict range based on your dependent variable. This is a study of violin skill and they restricted the range of subjects based on violin skill. It's the worst way to bias a study against evidence of innate talent. Not only that, but most of the, so 10 of the people who were rated highly had achieved 10,000 hours of practice on average by age 20. But in fact, most of them had not attained 10,000 hours. It was an average highly weighted by two people and the variance was incredible, but the paper did not report any measure of variance, sadly. It, it also didn't mention that the performers were quite inconsistent on their retrospective accounts of their actual practice hours. So the fact that it has come to be as important as it is, I think is a real problem. Um, and um, I think uh, when, when Gladwell and I, I, th I think he generally actually agrees with that to some extent. Well, I'm sure that Nathan will be listening to this podcast, so I'm happy to invite him on and have a chat any time or the two of you together after okay. one of your runs. Um, and Ericsson's written in the BJSM about uh, these thoughts, and we've got a great um, article by Ross Tucker yep. talking about this issue, and I know you're friends with him. So um, it's a great read with um, many of the sports medicine people that we know as characters, um, and I have to enjoy it a ton. Um, let's move on to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So there are some genetic implications in that. Tell us about that. So... Um this is CTE, which, of course, has been maybe the one of the biggest sports stories uh, in the United States, and I think in big in other parts of the world as well over the last couple of years. Um, what has been left out of all the reporting on CTE is the fact that there's an overrepresentation of a variant of the APOE gene, APOE4 gene variant, among 
football players who are ending up having their brains dissected, right? So this is a gene variant that we don't know everything about how it works, but it was first discovered as predisposing people to Alzheimer's. You have one E4 allele, about four times risk of developing Alzheimer's, two alleles, you're about eight times risk. Um, only about 2% of the population has two of the alleles. Um, between 15-20% of the population has at least one. But in the for the brains of football players that have been dissected, for which there is data, there's between 50 and 60% of them um, have an E4 allele. So, so clearly getting hit in the head is the first problem uh, for, for developing brain problems, but I think it's also clear that there's individual predisposition. Not to getting concussions, but to an inability to recover from them. Because people with this APOE4 gene variant before football, we knew that they're more likely to die if they hit their head in car accidents. They're less likely to have good, good results with rehabilitation. They're more likely to have more bleeding in their brain, all these sorts of things. They're less likely to have a quick recovery, more likely to have permanent uh, effects from multiple concussions. And this is being really left out of the conversation, um, partly, I think, because the medical community has decided it's not information that they want to share with athletes. There's some controversial issues there. Thanks for chat about those great stories. Thank you. And people can find your book, The Sports Gene, now in paperback, easy on Amazon. So you've been listening to BJSM Podcast. Follow us on Twitter for updates at BJSM underscore BFJ. 